We are in the book of Galatians, as you can see this morning, we come to a famous passage, it's the end of chapter 5, and I'm going to be beginning this week sort of a three-week series within a series on this famous passage, and again, this morning is more of an overview of the topic, and then we'll go down a bit deeper the next two weeks. So let's look at this, our scripture reading this morning, Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free... But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. It's God's word this morning. Uh, The famous Christian writer and counselor, a man named Dr. Henry Cloud, in his book, How People Grow, tells the story of his first day on the job in a psychiatric hospital in Dallas. And he talked about how excited he was to go there as his first day on the job as a doctor and to show everyone how much truth he had to share with them and how excited he was to fix everyone's problems in the hospital on the first day and to show them how much they had been missing by not having him there. And he said he went into the hospital, he, he went up to the nurse's station to introduce himself. I'm sure, Dr. John, you can relate to this. And he's at the nurse's station, he's standing there, meeting people, greeting people, uh, with all, the, again, the morning activity happening there in the hospital. And then all of a sudden, he said, out of the blue, as he looked down one of the long hallways in the hospital, uh, there was a woman. And again, it's a psychiatric hospital. A woman in a pink bathrobe that wanders out into the hallway, looks it right at him, extends her arms outward, and cries out, I am Mary, Mother of God. Yeah. And he said, uh, now think about that. Right? Think about that. He said, here I was, a brand new doctor at Christian counseling, thinking all I had to do was to tell people that God loved them and stuff. And they would be just fine. But he said, when I heard that woman say that, he said, it dawned on him, this is going to be harder than I thought. (laughs) Now, how many of you have ever started off trying to help someone grow only to realize that what you thought uh, was a normal person was really a crazy lady in a pink bathrobe just disguised as a normal person, right? Yeah. Now, I have. Now, I'm not making light of mental illness. I've had family members of my own suffer and die from the effects of mental illness. So I know the effects of that on a family. 
But that being said, let's not just move past the metaphor here. We are all like that lady in a way, maybe many ways, all massively in need of spiritual help and growth. And I hope you would say amen. Now, thankfully, this morning, we come to one of the greatest, if not the greatest passage on personal spiritual growth in the Bible. And make no mistake, you are a crazy lady in a pink bathrobe. You need this. You need this. And here's why. All your issues today are spiritual issues. Your relational problems, your financial problems, your emotional problems, your marriage problems, your overweight problems, your underweight problems, your worry problems, your sex problems. They're spiritual issues. And to grow through them, you're going to have to allow God to grow you spiritually. You're going to have to choose that. So let's ask them, well, how does, how does God grow us spiritually? Well, there are three ways from this text, from this passage, all from the idea of the very famous verse 22, when Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is. So let's look at these three ways this morning and just ask the question, how does God change us as people? How does he grow us? Three ways. Number one, frequently, organically. Two, sometimes dramatically. And finally, always lovingly. Let's begin here and look at number one. God grows us frequently, organically. Now, let's just sort of set this up by asking, where are we in the book of Galatians? Well, as we've seen, we've seen Paul vigorously defending the gospel, the the central message of Christianity, which is this, that a person's made right with God, made pleasing to God, is accepted by God on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing. And the reason he's been defending this message is because, as we've seen in this time, in this day and age, there was a powerful group of high-pressure church lobbyists that were pressuring these churches in the Roman state of Galatia to to think this. They, They were telling them that they were only really pleasing to God if they added in cultural Judaism. They were saying, yes, faith in Jesus is good, but you need to be circumcised. You must eat Jewish food, celebrate Jewish festivals in order to be the true church. And here Paul is saying that that kind of thinking only brings slavery. Only brings slavery when in fact Jesus came to bring you freedom. And to bring you freedom. That's the fact. The fact is, when the gospel is preached and, and lived, it brings freedom, not slavery. And so now Paul is about to describe what freedom looks like in the human heart. That's what he's doing here. And to describe what freedom looks like in the human heart, he uses the metaphor of fruit, right? He says this, but the fruit, one word, singular, not fruits, fruit of the Spirit is. Now, we're just going to pause here and just ask the question, what's he, what's he doing here by using this phrase? He's doing something amazing, something specific. And the answer is, by using this phrase, the fruit of the Spirit, Paul is simply, catch this, simply extending the metaphor that Jesus Christ introduced. He is extending the metaphor that Jesus Christ introduced. Think about this. I'll take you back to the Gospel of Matthew. In Jesus' very first parable... Jesus himself introduces us to the central metaphor, the central brand of the kingdom of God. What was it? Well, let's ask, what was his initial image, his inaugural analogy, his kingdom brand, the brand of the kingdom of God? Well, it can all be summed up in a word or in a phrase that his kingdom, Jesus' gospel, is like a seed. 
It's like a seed. Jesus' kingdom is like a seed that grows. Now, I'm not going to move past this too fast because this is amazing. Think about this. Jesus, uh, the, the second person of the Trinity, right? The Son of God. Jesus has waited in eternity to come to earth, right? And he's literally had forever to come up with the killer app of parables, with the best possible way to describe who he is and how he grows you. And you think, this is what he gives, right? This is the best that Jesus has got. Yes, it is. And it's amazing. Let's ask, why of all things would Jesus and Paul talk about a seed? Well, by contrast, we've got to see, first, what a seed is not. Because a seed's not something. Let's look at what Jesus and Paul don't compare the kingdom of God to, what they don't compare God's word to. Now, Jesus could have, but didn't, compare his kingdom to what some might have thought he would have compared it to, which would have been a boulder. A boulder. Why? Well, if you, let's consider this, if you're wanting to change uh, how a field looks, a big open field or a garden, you could drop a giant boulder in it, right? Over and over, and it would change. The power of the boulder would pulverize the ground, break anything smaller than itself, and smash to bits whatever it fell on. And that's how human kingdoms work. That's how human kingdoms work. Force, coercion, see. Jesus' hearers would have been well acquainted with the metaphor, uh, the concept of a kingdom as a boulder. And if he would have opened his ministry, and if Paul would have taught that the the kingdom's going to be like a boulder, everyone would have gotten it. Everyone would have cheered. Why? Because that's what the Romans and the Greeks did. That's how they exercised power. When Alexander the Great came into the field of your nation, how did he come in? Like a boulder, right? He'd smash your nation, smash your culture, smash your city. It'd be his. Alexander the Great was a boulder. He came through and smashed the field. The Roman Empire was a boulder. Came and smashed whatever was in his way. But here, in Jesus' first parable, he says, My kingdom isn't like a boulder. It's not. It's like a seed. The king of kings says his kingdom's like a seed. People are stunned. They don't want a seed. They want a boulder, right? And we're a boulder. What's the difference? Well, a boulder is large, but a seed is small. Everyone sees the boulder, only the sower sees the seed. The boulder revolutionizes the field on top. The seed revolutionizes the field from underneath, internally. The boulder can only break the ground where it strikes, but the seed can change the entire field. The boulder brings one-time change. The seed brings ongoing change. The boulder only stays on the surface. The seed goes down deep. The boulder is now. The seed is later. That's what it is. That's why it's so revolutionary to use terms like seed and fruit. It's so countercultural. No one would have expected it. Boulder, check, yes. You know, power, check. Sword, yes. Fire, yes. Jesus says, my kingdom's like a seed. Can you handle that? Can you handle that? The seed is the brand of God's kingdom. And if that's the case, and it is, we'd better understand how it works, how it grows. And here's how it grows. God's kingdom primarily grows, wait for it, uh, wait for it, organically. Organically, which means this. God's kingdom work, his seed in your life, his growth in the world comes most of the time slowly, gradually, imperceptibly. 
Why? Because organic growth is different than mechanical growth. And of course, Paul in Galatians knows this. He's using this metaphor here, fruit seed, to confront the Judaizers, right? Because mechanical growth, religious growth, is only outside in. That's what the Judaizers preached. Outside in festivals, laws, circumcision. Mechanical growth, religious growth, it's like trying to grow a brick pile. How do you grow a brick pile, for those of you who ever have grown a brick pile uh, in, your, in, your, in your neighborhood or your backyard? How do you grow a brick pile? How? Exclusively through effort, right? Brick, brick, brick. That's what religion is. It's feeling good because of the good things you do on your own, right? Meaning the standard you think you've got to keep. But the gospel is this. It's totally the opposite. The gospel is this. I am not inherently good, nor can I be good because of my own effort. But God accepts me through the radical grace of Jesus. And therefore, I change, yes, I change, out of love. Out of love. Out of his acceptance for me. Now, Both of these approaches produce change, don't they? Religion produces change, and the gospel produces change. One's mechanical, one's organic. Religion's like a brick pile. And you know what? If you come to a local church, you can can grow a brick pile that way. You can feel good about your big brick pile of church classes and church attendance and mission trips. And those are are great, but after a while, you, you can begin to look at those and say, you know what? I mean, my pile is bigger than his, bigger than hers, right? But the gospel's not like growing a brick pile. It's like growing a tulip. It's sowing a seed. It looks like it goes into the ground. It looks like it's dying, and it does die. But then it grows something beautiful and lovely in the end. And that's why Paul talks about fruit. Paul is extending the metaphor Jesus gave. He's saying this, if the gospel is like a seed, then it's going to bear fruit. It must bear fruit, which just means this. That most of the time, your spiritual growth is going to take time. Most of the time, your spiritual growth is just going to take time, which now means this. You need to be patient with yourself. You need to be patient with yourself. Quit being so hard on yourself all the time. Some of you are so hard on yourself all the time about your growth or lack thereof. God's growth takes time. And you need to quit being so hard on the people around you. To grow, 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 grow. All my children and yours, if you have them, came from what? A single seed, right? Of DNA. How did they grow? Was it all at once? No. That'd be weird. The old Saturday Night Live skit with Will Ferrell comes to mind. All right, I don't want to go there. It's YouTube fodder for later. Okay. You're warned. When my 11-year-old, who's huge now, by the way, if you've seen him, when he gets up in the morning, do I chastise him? Uh, I say, buddy, you didn't grow as much as I thought you should have last night. No. Do I get on by saying, hey, hey, you know, pal, you didn't, you didn't really grow fast last night. What's your problem? No. What do I help him do? I help him grow organically to, to do that. I help him by creating the conditions for growth in his life which for him would primarily be, if he had his way every day, by eating Tex-Mex, you know, food all the time, putting good food in him to help grow the seed, right? In other words, I facilitate the process of his growth, and therefore, in a very real way, to grow in the fruit of the Spirit in your life, to grow in love, joy, peace. Your role, your responsibility as a Christian is to facilitate the process of growth in your life. 
You can't make a seed. You can't make God's seed. You can't make any seed, but you can't help it grow. You can help it grow. You can create the conditions for growth in your life. And so before we move on, let me just give you one crucial way, briefly, to facilitate organic growth in your life, and it's this. You're going to be stunned when I tell you. You're not even going to think it's that much. You should write it down, though. Become a dependent person. Become a dependent person. Before you get mad at me and I get your email later about why I should have said interdependent. Let me just explain what I mean. Give it some context. Many of us function in a massively independent way, even as Christian people, because we're products of our culture. And if we were honest, there is, if all the surveys are true about the church, little to no Bible reading going on in your life, little to no prayer, little to no deep engagement in spiritual community by and large. And one of the main reasons for this, I believe, is that we have not put ourselves in a place of total dependence on God. Here's what I know about my life as a pastor. You ready? Here we go. Confessing my stuff to you. It's my version of therapy. Thank you. All right. Day in, day out. I feel so much weight and pressure, the pressure of people's lives, of growing them, of shepherding them through their own soul hurts and marriages, loving people well, managing the growth of our growing church, that if I don't spend massive quantities of time in God's presence, if I don't spend time reading God's word, studying his word, worshiping, praying, my soul will be crushed by that weight. But when I do that, oh, when I become totally dependent on God for my courage and my wisdom and my strength, I can handle anything, even your emails. <laughs> but that's not the only way I become utterly dependent. I, I have also become, chosen this, to become utterly dependent on a small group of people around me. I have people in my life so regularly, so consistently, that when I'm not around them, for an extended period of time, I begin to feel weak. And it's not just their accountability, hear this. It's not just the accountability that keeps me going. It's their friendship. It's their friendship. You and I were not just made for, and our community groups are not just about reading Bible verses together, as great as that is. It's about being in a place where real friendships can blossom and take place and be real in your life. And here's how that happens. Second Corinthians 5, Second Corinthians, excuse me, Paul says this. Corinthians, open your hearts to me, for I have opened mine to you. There must be a fair exchange here. He says, it's only right. Real friendship and relationship comes by opening your heart to someone else and having them open it back to you. See, without a right and fair exchange in a relationship, you'll never have friendship. Are you doing that? are you? You say, man, you sound pretty weak, Morgan. I say, well, fine. That's the inverted nature of the gospel. The person that makes himself dependent on no one will, in the end, never go as far spiritually nor carry as much weight spiritually in the kingdom of God as someone who does. Why? Because when I make myself utterly dependent on God and others, not in a selfish, demanding, one-way kind of thing, when I do this in a righteous way over and over, I have found the greatest Organic growth has taken place. Why? Because humility, as Andrew Murray said, is the only soil in which the grace of God can grow. That's number one. God grows us frequently, organically. Number two, this one will be a little shorter here. Sometimes God grows us dramatically. 
All right. Second way God grows us, that the metaphor of the seed and fruit show us, is that sometimes God just grows us dramatically in a moment through something I'll just call breakthrough change. Breakthrough change or growth is when you experience not the norm of Christian growth, which is organic, but you experience the, the exception to organic growth, which is instantaneous breakthrough growth, also a part of the Christian experience. After all, let's ask, what kind of a seed is it, right? What kind of a seed is it? For over in 1 Peter one twenty three, Peter tells us, he says, you have been what? What's the word? Born again, not of what? Seed, there's the word again. Seed which is perishable, but imperishable. Now, catch this. Paul is saying, excuse me, Peter's saying, there's something that God's seed does when it comes into your life. It gives birth to things. Did you, you, you get that? You see that? Paul's, excuse me, Peter's saying, God's seed gives birth birth to stuff. It means it brings it into existence. It brings stuff into being that wasn't in existence before. It changes things in a moment of time. And let me give you two examples. There's a young man that I've begun to mentor here in this church. I think it's a fantastic story. And to his credit, he's been, he's been seeking me out. And as we, we, we've begun to meet, he's begun opening up his life and talking about his past and his hurts and how, as a young man, his Christian father left his family and how he's turned to habitual drug use and other stuff to numb his pain and his anger. And he said he felt even guilty asking God to do anything for him now because of all the bad stuff that he said he'd done. He said, why should God do anything for me? He said, I don't deserve it. To, I, to which I replied, well, friend, that's exactly what grace is. <laughs> it's getting what you don't deserve. Now, with that thought in mind, he got up and he went to work, went to his job. We met again two weeks later, and we had barely sat down before he, he launched into his story and said, you'll never believe what happened to me after we met last time. He said, I said, well, tell me. He said, when I got up from our meeting, I went to work a little bit frustrated with you, a little bit angry. I didn't like what you said about you know, the connection between my drug use and my anger and all that. He said, I didn't think I had an anger problem, but then I went to work, and I got in a massive fight with my own brother at work. Uh, I exploded out of nowhere on him. I said some stupid stuff. And because I was angry, then I went home to calm myself down and I smoked pot. But he said, then in the middle of my high, I remembered what you said, that it was possible to live without this stuff, that God can change a person. And so he began to pray. He said, God, he said, would you come and touch me? I give my life to you. I don't want to live this way anymore. Would you change me? And he said, when I finished praying, he said, I felt some kind of presence come down on me. Some kind of goosebumps began to happen. And all of a sudden, my high went away instantaneously. I was sober again. He said, but the crazy thing was, I felt so at peace. I felt so calm without any drugs. Morgan, do you, do you think that was the Holy Spirit? <laughs> I about fell out of my chair. Last time we talked, you said, you know what? I'm living what I used to think was an impossible life. I haven't touched drugs for over a month now. God's changed me. Yeah. That's the breakthrough kind of growth. The seed of God brings into a life. Second story. Another man I met with recently who confessed he'd had a porn addiction for the last 25 years. Nearly destroyed his marriage. Of course, if the studies are true, many of you in here struggle with that as well. Nearly destroyed his marriage. He'd been to church, recovery groups, counseling, nothing worked. But then he said, I was desperate. 
Desperate. After a period of several months, he said, uh, of crying out to God, uh, and one day in particular crying out to God to change me, he said, I was at home, I was in my room one afternoon, and it was like something out of the sky hit me, his words. He said, I fell on the floor. He said, for the next hour and a half, he said, I was moaning, I was crying, coughing, vomiting. <laughs> so my wife found me, got scared, was about to call an ambulance when the experience stopped. He said, I got up, and he said, I was free. He said, I was free. He said, and I'm meeting with him in a restaurant when he's telling me this. All of a sudden, he starts tearing up, starts lifting his hands, and he said, he can't touch me anymore. Yeah, we like that. He says, you'll never know what a miracle that is. For someone like me to be free after years of counseling and therapy, only someone who has been an absolute addict like me can know what an incredible thing that God has done for me. Well, what was that? Well, we experienced the breakthrough growth of the imperishable seed of a living God. Now, being the really good, charismatic people we are, we love those, right? And a lot more applause there for, you know, the breakthrough stories than for the stuff about the seed and the slow growth. You weren't really <laughs> cheering me then, right? We like the power growth, not the organic stuff. And if you're from a more denominational church background here, you're way more comfortable with the slow organic growth. The power growth, you know, Holy Spirit goosebumps may make you a little nervous, all right? But the metaphor of the seed and a fruit shows us we should expect both kinds of change. And I'll go one step further and say this. The metaphors of seed and fruit show us that not only should we expect change, It shows us that we need change. We need change. We need to change. We're not okay on how we are on our own. And that, hear this, that God is for us in our growth process. He is absolutely for you to grow. For you to grow. For you to break through. I mean, look at the length, actually, because we're going to. Paul goes to here to describe... All the kinds of stuff you need to move out of and grow out of. He says this, the acts of the flesh are obvious. Stuff you've got to grow out of. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfless ambition. Are you done, Paul? No, he's not. Dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. He says, I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And by the way, if you're new here, please don't feel that Paul or we are beating up on sinners or skeptics or non-Christians. Because after all, let's look at the list for half a second. There are 15 things he lists here. And seven of them, or roughly half, are sins that typically more secular, irreligious people commit. You know, sexual sin, drug abuse, etc. You know, substance abuse. But the other half, the other eight, are sins that typically more religious Church people struggle with. You say, where's that? Look at that. Dissensions, factions, envy, jealousy, discord. Ever heard of those things being present in a church? Sure you have. The point is this. Everyone needs a savior and everyone needs to grow. The last question, though, is how? How? We've seen the gospel grows us, God's kingdom see grows us, frequently, organically, and sometimes dramatically. But this last one here really is the trigger for both of those, the trigger. And it's seeing this, that God always grows us finally. Number three, he God grows us lovingly. God grows us lovingly. And let me show you what I mean here. Lasting change in your life begins by understanding and believing the absolute promise that Galatians 5.16 gives you today. Paul says, so I say, walk by the Spirit, 
and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He said, there's a way of living, a way of, uh, a manner of living, if you will understand it and commit to it, will enable you to grow past and defeat every enemy of your soul. So let's see what it is. What do we need to grow past, be free from? Well, he tells us it's this, the desires of the flesh. So let's ask, what are these? Well, this word here, desires, honestly isn't a lot of help. If you've got an older translation, it may say the lusts of the flesh. But the reason most updated translations don't say lust and, don't, and say desires is because we always tend to think of lust in a purely sexual uh, manner and man, in, in manner of speaking, which is why this word's been changed to desires, but it still falls short. The original word here in the Greek is the word epithumia, which means this, a super desire, over desire, or reigning desire. And right there, right there, that word gives a whole new meaning to what you think of as sin and a whole new understanding of how you can grow. So let's ask, what is sin, right? What ruins people's lives? And here's what this passage tells us. According to this, it's less inherently evil things, and it's almost always good things gone bad. Ambition, right? It's a good thing. Desire to lead. The Bible says it's noble. Noble. But what if it turns to serving out of a need for power and not service? Oh, bad. Anger can be a great thing. But when it goes to a fit of rage, then it's destructive. Sex is a gift God's given humanity until it becomes the thing you have to have to be okay. See, he's saying it's not your desires that are killing you. It's your over-desires. It's your super-desires that flare up and desire to reign over you. That's what epa means, to reign over the super, the dominant, the kingly desire. Paul says this, you've got desires that want to be king in your life. They want to own you and direct you and dictate how you live. But he's saying this, if you're a Christian, you've got a new nature, a new seed, a new way of overcoming all of that. It's called walking in the power of the Spirit. And let's look at that, what that's not briefly. He says, if you're led by the Spirit, what does that mean? It means you're not under law. And this is amazing and mind-blowing. He's saying up to this time, there's all kind of stuff you got to get free from, right? And he lists 15 things, immorality, substance abuse, jealousy, 15 ways to not live by the Spirit. And then he sums them up and says all of them mean living under the law. Every sin, in a sense, is living under the law. What's he talking about? Well, remember what the book is about, right, church? It's all about a group of people who had begun to relate to God and grow in grace and grow in faith in Christ, but they were going to go and live under the Jewish law and customs. Why were they doing that? Oh, because the Galatians began to see the law as a means of salvation. They thought that following the strictest moral code and dietary laws was their means of salvation. In other words, they took a good thing, the law, they lifted it up, said, you're my salvation, and then that began to dictate how they lived. That drove their behavior. And today, if there's sin in your life, it's because you've got another Savior operating, driving your behavior. See, if, you, if you're chasing a career, man, and your kids don't know you, and your wife wishes she didn't, <laughs> it's because you're looking at your career as a means of salvation. You don't believe you're accepted until you get the promotion. Try to save your life, but you'll only lose it. If you're breaking down here because you can't carry the emotional weight of people's expectations, this has been me. If you're, it's because you're looking to people's acceptance of you as your salvation, thinking if I'm accepted, then I'm okay. So you're trying to save your life, but you're losing it. 
That's what Paul calls living under the law. It's no different than the Galatians. Paul is saying, if there's sin in your life, you've got a competing Savior. You've got epidesires. So what are you going to do about it? Oh, thankfully, he shows us the way out. He says this, walk by the Spirit. You won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit. The Spirit contrary to the flesh. And here's what he's saying. Walking in the flesh means desiring what the flesh wants. Walking in the Spirit, therefore, means this. Desiring what the Spirit I think I have a slide for that, don't we? Yeah, desiring what the Spirit wants. That's what walking in the Spirit means. Walking in the Spirit means desiring what the Spirit wants. And let's ask, what does the Spirit want? Hmm? What does the Spirit desire? It's It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The Spirit desires Jesus. Almost lusts in a sense for Jesus. I know it's dangerous. That's the point of the language. In John 17, Jesus says, The Spirit will come, make me known, talk about me, show me, uh, blow me up to the world in a sense, will enable you to be a witness for me. Oh, the Spirit desires, wants Jesus to be known, which now shows us how real and lasting change comes. It doesn't come from maybe the classic way uh, that some church models give, which is this. The classic model you may have gotten for change is the sin model, which says this, God is good, you're bad, stop it. Stop it. But that's not what Galatians 5 says. That's not how God's kingdom seed works. Lasting change comes not from looking at sin and saying, stop it, but from looking at Jesus and saying, more please. More please. More of you. I want more of you, my Savior. Show me your beauty. Show me your loveliness. Show me how you were patient with me. Show me how you came apart from me on the cross. Then how I could be whole. That's what the word goodness means. It means integrated, whole person. Show me how much you've loved me. And now out of that, I'll change. Final quote, Thomas Chalmers here, famous sermon, says this, It is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural distinction. At least it's very seldom that this is done by reasoning or by, he says, force of mental determination. That means thinking harder. He says, but what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed, and one taste may be made to give way to another and lose its power entirely as the reigning affection of the mind. The boy who ceases at length to be a slave to his appetite does so because a more mature taste has brought it into subordination. The young man may cease to idolize sensual pleasure, but it's because the idol of wealth has gotten the ascendancy. So the love of money can cast out the love of sloth. However, even the love of money can cease to have mastery over the heart if it's drawn into the world of ideology and politics. And he's now lorded over by a love of power and moral superiority. Catch this. But there is not one of these transformations in which the heart is left without an object. The heart's desire for an ultimate object may be conquered, but its desire to have some object is inconquerable. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is through the expulsive power of a new one. It is therefore only, and here's the solution, when, he's, when you're admitted into the number of God's children through faith in Jesus Christ, that the what? The spirit of adoption is poured out on us. And it is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great predominant and supreme affection is delivered from the tyranny of former desires. And the only way that deliverance is possible.
Here's what he's saying. It's a little bit in your face today. Do you want to be free? (laughs) The expulsive power of a new affection can give it to you. First, you're going to have to believe it. I'll let our our band come up here and play as we close. First, you're going to have to believe that God's promise to you in Galatians 5 is more true and more real than whatever going through. That if you'll walk by the Spirit, fill your heart with God's affection over and over again, your over-desires won't master you. And finally, as we close, here's this. You're saying, Morgan, is G- you're saying Jesus is all I need. I've heard that before, yes. But you need all of Jesus. You need all of Jesus. What does that mean? It means you need his word. You need obedience to his word. And you need his body. People you can have relationships with in a fair exchange of heart.